Luke 15, beginning in verse 11, God's word says, And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the far country, and he began to be in need. So he went out and hired himself to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Well, the renowned theologian Bono once said, It's a powerful idea, grace. It really is. We hear so much about karma and so little about grace. Every religion teaches about karma, and what you put out, you'll receive. And even Christianity, which is supposed to be about grace, has turned redemption into good manners, or the right accent, or good works, or whatever. I just can't get over grace. Today we're looking again at Jesus' parable of the two lost sons. And you may remember from last time, if you look at chapter 15, verse 1, all of this happened because the religious leaders are upset. They're grumbling against Jesus because he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. And so Jesus gave three parables. Parable of a lost sheep that the shepherd left the 99 to get the one and says in verse 7, with joy he celebrates and so he says, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who need no repentance. Or then he tells of a lost coin which was lost and then he went and found it again. There was joy. And then of the lost son, but the older son did not rejoice. And he was calling us not to look at our goodness like the older son, but to focus on God's grace. To not be prideful in what we do, but humbled by what God has done for us. And in the middle of this, we're seeing that Jesus is showing us two ways we can rebel against God. You know, the main one we almost always focus on is what we're going to look at today, the prodigal. But we saw last week, it's a subtle way to rebel against God, and that is always doing what he says. By being righteous, to be seen by God, to be seen by others, is a way to keep God at a distance. And yet we also know the way of rebelling by running from him. And this morning we're going to see three things. First, there's a rejection. He's, he 
flees from the Father in verses 11 through 16. But then there's a repentance coming to our senses in verses 17 and 19. And then lastly, restoration. Because we get to celebrate not as restored servants, but as sons. Verses 20 through 24. And this story here begins with this outrageous claim, this question, this request of the son. He says, Father, I want you to give me my share of the inheritance. There's a man named Kenneth Bailey. He was a New Testament scholar, and he worked in Jerusalem for many years, several decades. And while he was there, he got to know tribes in the surrounding region, nomadic tribes, tribes that were there. And as he would interact with them, he'd ask him various questions. And he would almost always inquire whether a son would ever ask his father for the, his share of the inheritance. And they would always reply, no, never. And of course, he said, well, why not? And they would say, it would be as if he was saying he wanted the father dead. Imagine you're sitting over lunch today, and if you haven't already got all your Christmas shopping done, you say, hey, child, what would you like for Christmas? And they go, you know what I'd really want? I would really like it if you and mom died, and then we could just go ahead and have all your stuff. Would that be okay? Could we have that this year? I mean, if you didn't just like, ah, don't want to be recorded saying anything. If you didn't just like blow up, ah, how could you say that? How could you want my stuff? But you don't want me. And yet, that's what the younger son's saying. He's like, Dad, I don't want you alive. I just want your stuff. Give me the good that you can give me and then just get out of my life. And yet here, Jesus is showing us ultimately that's what our sin is like. This is really an analysis of sin that we come to God saying, God, give me, give me, but I don't want you. What you give is good. You are not good. This goes all the way back to the garden because what is the temptation of satan god is a miser he's got this good tree but he doesn't want you to have it so if you want to really enjoy life you got to break his will because god is trying to hold back from you and that's what the son is saying is this audacious request is showing us what our sin ultimately means and yet then it says the father divides the property he allowed the son to insult him in this costly way. It's very costly because when it says he divided his property, the word is literally bios. You probably, some of you, oh, biology. From life. He literally divided his life. That's how much it hurt to do this. You think about what he should have said. You ingrate. Get out of my house. You're written out of the will. You're not going to get anything. And yet he divides his life, so to speak. He fulfills this request. It's this mystery. Why does God allow us to rebel? Why do he allow Satan to rebel and then tempt us? Well, we don't ultimately know, but we know in his good providence, he allows us to have some freedom in which we can choose even our own punishment. We can choose what hurts us. And here, the Father is allowing the Son to choose what he wants to have that freedom even to choose his own destruction. Well, then soon after this, the son, it tells us, verse 13, he gathers everything up and he goes to the far country. Now, remember, this is being told to the religious leaders and they desire purity. And for them, purity is not only avoiding evil, but avoiding evil people like tax collectors, sinners, and 
Gentiles. Well, to go to the far country, this son is clearly going to the Gentiles. And it's showing how wicked he's being. He's sinning not just against his father on earth, but in heaven. And then when he gets there, he squandered all his money in wild, reckless living. And the picture almost comes close to the idea of him just picking up the money and throwing it in the wind. Oh, there it goes. There it goes. Whew. And he's left without a single denarii. Now you might be thinking, okay, this is really a hyperbole, over the top. No one would ever get like this massive inheritance and then just waste it all. Well, when we lived in Ohio, across the street from us was a man and his elderly mom, and sadly she was not doing well. And while we lived there, she passed away, and he inherited the house in $120,000. Four months later, he had the house and no money and nothing to show for it. There are a lot of people over the house over the last four months. There's a lot of fun things, so to speak, but it was all gone. He had squandered it all. And then as often happens, notice what it says in verse 14, then a severe famine arose. You know, famines are going to come in life. Maybe not a famine of food, but maybe a famine of family crisis, a famine of personal illness, a famine of fill in the blank of what's happened in your life. And the question is, what you've turned to for joy, for happiness, for life before that, is it going to get you through the famine? Or will you starve? Well, the son here, what he did left him wholly unprepared. And being in such desperate need, verse 15 tells us, he went and he found a person in the country. Literally, the word is he glued himself. He was so desperate, the first person who looked up at his homeless, I'll work for food, he latched onto him. Oh, you looked up, I'll grab you anything. Let me work for you, please. And so the man sends him out into the field to feed the pigs. These are the religious leaders. They want purity. They don't even want to be with Gentiles, but to have to feed the pigs was insult added on to injury. You know, the Levitical law declared pigs to be unclean, and they were not even to touch them. The rabbinic writings pronounced a curse on those who cared for pigs. You know, in their mind, the sun cannot sink any lower. Yet he does. Because he's so starving, he wants to eat the pig pods. Oh, looks so good. Even pigs are leading a better life than he does. You know, the son has nothing to eat but the bitter consequences to his actions. And so Jesus here, he's trying to show us what does it look like to reject the Father, to reject God, to go from him. And he's showing us it's folly. It is destruction. You know, sin is this great magician that takes what's good and makes us think, oh, that's folly. Makes us look what's wise and goes, that's foolish. And it, oh, foolish, oh, that's good, I should pursue that. You know, sin has the power to twist and make things appear as what they're not. And what we need is the faith to look through and realize God's word is true. The faith that is described in Hebrews eleven twenty four, where it says, by faith, Moses, when he was grown, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. 
He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. The one thing I love about the Bible is its honesty. Did you notice what it said in Hebrews 11? He did not, he, he gave up, he did not enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Sin is pleasurable. It might be a shocking message from the pulpit, but sin is enjoyable. We all know it. No one sins going, oh, I hate this. That's why we sin. And we have to realize that, but it's fleeting. That's what we have to realize. You will enjoy it. Whatever it is you're tempted to, in the moment, you will probably love it so much. Just as you love it as you eat the 12th Twix bar from Halloween. Until 30 minutes later when you're hugging the crystal crown. And you're going, oh, why did I ever do that? Fleeting pleasures of sin. No enjoyment in the long term. And Jesus is showing that, look, you will not find long-lasting pleasure in it. There's a much greater, there's a much more enjoyable reward in Christ in knowing and obeying Him. God warns us, Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. But what should we do when we've pursued what's wrong? What seemed right in the moment? As I read this parable, I often forget the context. I don't know about you, but remember, Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders, but who else is there? The tax collectors and sinners, they're hearing this. They know that Jesus just told a story about them, and they're probably thinking, well, what can you do next? Is that it? End of story. Well, he went out to the far country. Well, that stinks for him. He ruined his life. No, Jesus goes on, and you can just imagine all of these people rejoicing as they hear there's hope because we'll see that the prodigal doesn't have to stay in the pigsty they're not stuck and jesus shows that next verses 17 through 19 repentance coming to our senses verse 17 says but when he came to himself your commentators note that's kind of a hebrew and aramaic phrase for repentance you know, the lies he believed, they proved to be false, and he's recognized them as that. And he basically considers, look, how many servants do my, does my father have that they have so much bread, they're full every night. And here I am, I'm licking, I'm starving. I'm just wanting a pig pod. And so he formulates a plan. Okay, I'm going to go back to my father, and I'm going to tell him I've sinned against heaven and against you. And here this is showing us an incredible truth we have to realize, and that is our sin is never just horizontal. You know, when King David sins, he greatly sinned against Bathsheba, but he can rightly say in Psalm 51, verse 4, Against you, God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You know, the son here is owning what he's done and the wrong that it was. He didn't say, well... I'm going to come back and tell my dad that there was this famine. Or I'm going to come back and say, you know, Dad, I'm sorry, I was really young. You know, God had to sow my oats. Dad, you just, you don't understand, there's these oppressive forces out there, and 
can you just take me back? You know, there are some horrible aspects of our life. But restoration comes when we no longer focus on what's been done to us, but how we've responded and sinned both horizontally and vertically. When we take responsibility and accountability for our actions, that's always the first step. Your environment, what's happened to your life, that does matter. It is significant. But it has never caused you to act a certain way. It has surely influenced you. It has powerfully tempted you. It's maybe even encouraged you. But we are responsible for our actions. And so the son is going to go on. He says in verse 19, he'll say, I'm no longer worthy to be called one of your sons. Treat me as one of your servants. Now the issue here is not one of legality. Sure, he's still legally a son. It's one of relationship. How can he come back to his dad after he knows he told him, I want you dead and want to be treated like a son? And yet he knows just being a servant would be better than the situation I'm in now. And Jesus' story here is showing us what repentance looks like. Now that word is never used in this section, but that's the larger context because Jesus is talking about tax collectors and sinners. In the first parable, the lost sheep, if you look at verse 7, he says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or he ended the second parable over the joy of finding the lost coin in verse 10 by saying, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So Jesus now is giving a parable of what does repentance look like. And he's showing us there's three aspects to it. First, as we already hinted at, there's ownership and taking responsibility of actions before God. As I said, we focus so much on the horizontal effects why did they do that oh he had bad parents oh he was raised in poverty he was tired he hasn't eaten in a while all of those are legitimate serious issues that we need to help people with as we're able however we are not victims who are unable to control our life And you should hear that as good news. Let's just imagine you are only a victim. Then there is no hope. If you're only a victim and your surroundings determine how you act, then you can never change. Because it's always forces acting upon you. And yet God shows us you can be restored. You can have hope. Because the issue is not just a horizontal one, though that matters. It's also vertical. And you could be restored to God. There is hope for change. Your past, as you look back, it might just be completely unimaginable, horrific as you think of what's happened. Your present might be like this man. It might be unbearable. But Jesus is showing that in him, your future can be filled with hope and joy unbelievable. Don't just look to the past. Don't just look to the present, but look up at Christ and he can give you hope and joy unbelievable. However, he's saying the first step is that we have to take ownership and responsibility. We have to repent. But that leads to the second aspect of genuine repentance and that is confession. 
of the wrongfulness. The son says, I have sinned against heaven and you. Not, well, I did it, and I know I did it, but I don't care. No, I did it, and it was wrong. It wasn't not, well, I made a mistake. Well, if they hadn't first, well, maybe if you had, well, you have to understand that, well, but only if, no ifs, ands, onlys, buts, I sinned, period. He owned it. He's saying it's wrong. Not only did I do it, I'm agreeing with God that what I did was wrong when I did it. And that leads to the third aspect of genuine repentance, coming home. Notice that along with taking ownership and along with confessing the sin, he returned. James Boyce writes, thinking alone did not save him, accurate though his thinking was. Confession alone did not save him, though he had much to confess. He needed to turn around and seek God, and that he did. He actually left his sin and returned to his father. You imagine if he said, this is horrible, I've done what's wrong, this is not the way I should have lived, and he stayed in the pigsty. Well, then he would not have really repented. Repentance is not merely feeling sorry about the ramifications of your actions. Repentance is about restoring the relationship, seeking to be reconciled to God. And repentance can be very hard. And you can imagine the son, as he's rehearsing the speech, he's somewhat dreading. What is the father going to say? And yet, what he doesn't realize is the great grace of his father. And we see that lastly in verses 20 through 24, restoration, celebrating as sons. Verse 20, he begins his trip back. And you can just imagine the angst in his stomach. You've probably had these situations. You've owned up and you know you've got to go tell your spouse or tell your parents what you've done and you got the speech and you're working it out. And the whole time you're wondering, well, how are they going to respond when I first come to them? And yet the son doesn't have to wonder. You don't have to tiptoe up the porch and then lightly knock and, hey, it's me. <laughs> Everything good? Got some things to say. No, what happens? The father has been longingly looking. That's the picture we're supposed to get. Every day he's been looking out. Yes, I remember where the dust went over the hill. And is there any dust coming back? And he sees it and he runs to the son out of his compassion for him. And to fully appreciate this, we have to understand their culture was all about shame and honor. I mentioned Kenneth Bailey earlier, the scholar who studied in the Middle East and then taught there. And he would also ask questions. He knew this one church, even in, it was like in the late 1900s, they were looking for pastors and there was this one man they liked, but they decided not to call him because he walked too quickly. You don't want a disrespectful unhonorable pastor who walks too quickly you got to have honor and respect in your being because you watch the news have you ever seen queen elizabeth run have you ever seen a president or an ambassador run well they would never do that that would be dishonorable you go slowly you sit and yet here the father runs you in their society a child might run a worker might run but a man of honor would never do this. To do this, he'd have to lift his robes and show his legs, which would be a disgrace for them, and run. He'd have to take 
shame. And yet this father runs. There's a wonderful spiritual truth being conveyed by this. And that is that rather than the shame being poured out on the son, the father takes the shame himself. Everyone in the village would have known what happened. Little Joe hasn't been around in a while. Yeah, um, he kind of asked for his half of the inheritance. What? Oh, yeah. Everyone knows. Everyone expects when he comes back that if he ever comes back, that that's a shame. We don't want him. And yet rather than him receiving the shame, the father runs and takes the shame himself. This is the wonderful message of the Bible that God in Christ takes what we deserve and he gives us what he deserves. And all this happened not after years of penance, not after he'd begged and pleaded and cajoled for favor. The father sought him when as soon as he saw him and took his shame. You know, the message of the Bible is not that you need moral reformation, that you need to make yourself better before God, and then he'll consider welcoming you home. The message of the Bible is you need spiritual regeneration. You need to be born again. You need to be made completely new. In other words, you need something that we can't do. And notice the father didn't restore the son in line with the son's plan. It wasn't, okay, you work a few years and We'll see how you're doing because we don't know. We might bring you back. You might do this again. we got to be cautious on welcoming you back too quickly. No, he runs and restores the son instantaneously, freely, fully. There was no, oh no, I think that's my son. Hey, servant, go tell him he's not welcome back. There's no sitting on the porch, arms crossed, staring at him, filling and Casting guilt on him, waiting for him to break the awkward silence. There was no, well, I'll talk to your mother. We'll see. There was no, how dare you turn up back here? Do you know what your mother and I have been through? We can't even walk through the market without hearing the whispers behind our back. We are a shame in this community because of you. If you want to come back now, okay. Yeah, that's rich. No. He instantaneously freely fully runs to the sun there's no revenge there's no bitterness there's no desire to make him pay instead he bore the shame and ran as bono said i just can't get over grace why would we ever want to talk about karma grace not just that walking him the grace that ran and hugged him and kissed him. Not the hug of, well, mom says we need to make up. We're good. The hug that wraps the arms around the necks and the kisses all over his neck. As Alistair Begg said, the son had left the father's house, but he never left the father's heart. And then the son kind of breaks into his rehearsed speech. Well, father, I... Verse 21, I've sinned against heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And you may have noticed he didn't give the whole speech. He didn't say, treat me as one of your servants. And most assuredly, he 
realized after that compassionate and gracious response of his dad running to him to now say, treat me as one of your servants would be like slapping him again. He's welcoming him back, but he still doesn't feel like he's all the way back. So where is he? He's in this limbo. Well, my dad loves me, but I don't deserve this. And well, the father leaves no doubt, verse 22, because he calls the servants, tells them to bring the best robe, a ring, and new sandals. This isn't just any robe or Hey, go back. Remember we had that chest where we kept all his clothes? Go one, pull one of those back out. No, go get the best robe, the one we saved for the guest. Put a ring on his finger showing him that he's part of the family. Give him sandals. Now you might think, oh, well, that's just kind of commonplace. You know, he was poor, probably didn't have shoes, giving him sandals. But servants weren't given sandals. By giving him sandals, he's showing him, I am making you one of my sons again. The son came in rags, but the father is immediately restoring him to rich robes. This is picturing the full reconciliation given us through Christ. Not only that, but he goes from licking his chops at a pig pod to having a fattened calf killed for him that they might celebrate. Just imagine a calf. That's a massive amount of meat. This isn't just going to be Dad and son enjoying a nice, quiet steak together over dinner. People are being invited. This is We have to party. If a celebration occurs because of a lost sheep and a celebration occurs over a lost coin, both being found, we have to celebrate when the son of mine is brought home. Verse 24, because he was dead and he is now alive. When you think of your relationship with God before Christ, How would you describe it? Jesus showed us early on in the parable, our relationship is one of rejection, where we say, I want what you'll give me, God, but I don't actually want you. And yet now Jesus is probing further and saying it's more than rejection because that rejection then led to us being dead, spiritually dead. Paul writes in Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. God declared from the beginning that the wages of sin is death and there's no earthly hope for a dead man. Dead people don't bring themselves back to life. But Paul continues, Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. Sunday school class should know this this morning, learned it. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Paul is stating what Jesus is illustrating. Our sin made us dead to God. But there's a mercy. And there's a grace in God that will make us alive again. Not after years of toil and effort, earning it back. Because dead people can't do that. Solely by grace, we're welcomed. We're restored. To God. The son was dead and now he was alive. He was lost and now he's found, and they all begin to celebrate. Again, put yourself in this audience. Yes, Jesus is talking to the religious leaders, but how must the tax collectors and sinners have heard this message? They must have been amazed because all they've known. All their life is whenever they get close to the synagogue, scorn, derision. You're not welcome here. 
We don't want you here. We know where you've been and what you've done, and we don't want you. You've gone too far. And yet Jesus is showing these people who are here amazed that this religious person has already welcomed them, but now he's telling them this is what God is like. There's not a country far enough that you can go to that you can't come home. All you have to do is recognize the folly of your rejection. Repent before God and He will restore you fully. There's never a number of times or a level of depth of sin that God is not eagerly looking out, wanting to run to us when He sees us coming home. Now there's also joyful news. You don't have to wait till you're fully in the pigsty. You could repent as you start to walk away at first. You don't have to let your life hit bottom. You can repent now. And even as Christians, there's a level of application to us because, yes, we've been brought back, but we start to wander maybe a little each day. And each day we don't have to wait. Okay, i got to hit bottom. Turn now. Come back. And the Father is there with open arms wanting to receive us. He's showing us, look, True joy, true life. Celebration occurs when you come home. I think this passage is really reflecting on the idea of freedom because when we think, when I'm free to do what I want, then I'll enjoy life. However, Jesus is showing us the truth is when we use our freedom to submit to him to do God's will, that's when we have life. But are you fighting for freedom? Oh, when I can just get out of this house, when I can do what I want, oh, these rules, they are so oppressive. Oh, when I can just retire, oh, when I can just get away from my spouse at work, it's, oh, I want to get away. I want freedom. And yet Jesus is showing us freedom comes in submitting to him, no matter how hard the circumstances. You see, the only true free being in the whole universe, he used his freedom not for himself, but to give. Because in the story, no parable tells the whole story. Because the Father not only took our shame, in Jesus he took our guilt and punishment. He died taking our place. A great acrostic to remember grace is God's Riches at Christ's expense. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Because Christ took that shame. Because Christ took our punishment. We are welcomed home. I'll end with this illustration. You maybe have seen the movie Aladdin, the older one. I haven't seen the newer one. But in it, probably same story. There's this pauper. And he's trying to win this princess. But he can't because he's in chains. He's a pauper, and to marry a princess, you have to be a prince. And it seems there's no hope until he finds the genie's lamp. He's got wishes. And yet, he's kind, and he realizes, I'll free the genie. And you know the story through twists, turns, lies, selfishness. Things don't go as they plan. And finally, it seems, okay, everything's been sorted out. We're back to square one. If we just make Aladdin a prince... Gets to marry the princess, live happily ever after. So the genie's ready, and Aladdin says, Genie, I wish for your freedom. 
You didn't make a wish for yourself. You could have freely chosen anything, and Aladdin chooses to use it for someone else. You know, it's showing that Aladdin was truly free only when he's not thinking about himself. You know, here, we're being shown, look, true life, true freedom is not going, what about me, what about me, what about me? God used his freedom to reach down and save us. He didn't have to. He didn't need us. And yet, he's the type of God who, when we reject him, he's looking out, longing for us to return. He's saying, I want you to come back, and I made a way through my son. He's used his freedom. Freely I lay my life down. Freely I take it up again so that you might have true joy and true life. In the story, there's two sons, but as we've sung this morning, as we reflect on this season, God sent his only son so that you might come and not just as be restored to a servant. You know, that's what the son thought he deserved. Oh, I, I, if I could just be made a servant. And he says, no, no, I welcome you all the way home so that you can be my son and daughter. John Newton famous hymn writer on his deathbed said, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Let's pray. Oh Lord, may we see your grace. There is no better gift than knowing you and knowing that you welcome us home through your grace. Oh Lord, we are prone to wander and yet you welcome us back. We thank you for your amazing love. May we delight in that this season. May we delight in that today. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.